hold hands and close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Pass. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brennan Store. I'm Paul Bestall. And this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 176, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. Paul, how you doing? I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? I am surprisingly good. <laughs> I uh, I have had a run of good days. Honestly, I, I'm you know, uh, despite what some people who listen to the show think, I am actually Italian, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, we are a peasant people. I'm made to be worked. Uh, I do not handle downtime very well, and so <laughs> I have been working a lot, and that that keeps me happy, keeps me keeps me humble. <laughs> and uh, also, I, I was taking out the trash the other day. Uh, actually, it was this morning, mm. and I, you know, I fought the squirrels off because there are quite a few squirrels in the back back area around my apartment. <laughs> and I tossed in my trash, and I looked in, and there was bags and bags and bags of uh, acoustic foam tiles that someone had thrown away. So clearly, some poor podcaster, because it's basically the same stuff as I have on my walls here. So very clearly some poor bastard had just decided, nope, I am done with this. And he had, you know, thrown, thrown everything in bags and thrown them in the trash. And, you know, I assumed he, uh, he had clearly given up. And, and I thought, well, you know, obviously I was at a point myself uh, earlier this year where I was considering the same thing. So I, I am having a good day anyways, and even more so realizing that I'm not that guy. It's not my acoustic panels in the trash providing bedding for the squirrels. So things are things are good. Excellent. On a spooky note, <laughs> I had uh, I was contacted by a, a friend of mine a couple of days ago, and uh, he was he works back in Victoria. He does social work, and he was saying that he was in a building. He was checking on some of the residents, and there was a gentleman just as he was about to get on the elevator. He saw an older gentleman who was dressed kind of rough, trying to get into a door, and he was kind of tugging on this door. But my friend got in the elevator, went downstairs, walked outside, and the same old man was outside doing exactly that at another door. Mm-hmm. And he said, there's no way this fellow could have gotten there in the amount of time it took him, because this guy would have had to sprint down four flights of stairs in the amount of time it took him to get in the elevator, go down, and get out of the building. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he has absolutely no idea why. He just, he said, it's one of those things that it just doesn't make any sense, but it was exactly the same person. I asked him, I said, you know, could it have been someone else? And he said, nope, no, it was exactly the same person. And he said, I, I didn't even, I didn't know how to react. He said, so I just didn't, I just kept going and went on to the next building. But he said, it just stuck in his brain because it felt wrong. How strange. That's a bit peculiar. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, that's full on glitch in the matrix stuff. I mean, it's weird enough to see it once on one particular floor, but to then see it on another floor doing exactly the same thing, that just, that, that's baffling. Yeah. I'm, well, the first time he just thought it was some guy getting into, you know, just trying to get into his apartment or something. He, he didn't, like, he didn't seem violent, so he didn't think it was something he had to worry about. You know, he like the, the kind of folks he, he helps, you know, it's not uncommon for them to be upset, you know? So it wasn't like a shock that there was someone, you know, out of sorts. 
But the fact that this person then repeated outside in exactly the same clothes, exactly the same person, seconds later, he said it, it just completely upended his day. He, as he said, he still, he still kind of gets chills when he thinks about it. I've never so. heard of anything like that. No, me either. It, again, it, it's like a, like a deja vu, again, glitch in the matrix, whatever the hell you want to call it. It's like a, something is not right here, but it's not right in a way that we don't necessarily have an easy explanation for. Like we don't have a, like a, a phenomenon you would say to, to explain that. It's, it's almost as if he was meant to see it and that's why it repeated. But why? I have no idea. My friend's been doing this work for a couple of years now. He's fairly well versed in, in the comings and goings of these various buildings. And he said, this is just, this is new, never happened before. And he, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll find out. Maybe there is a reason that will, maybe there is a reason that will slowly reveal itself. But for the time being, it's, it's a big old goddamn mystery. Mm. And speaking of big old goddamn mysteries on this episode, we are going to be looking at the hauntings of Indiana. And, uh, we, we were looking at this one for a while. We, especially after doing the Chicago episode, cause there's a few stories that sort of from Chicago that, that had some connections to Indiana and we kind of wanted to, to take a deeper look at it. What was interesting is though, when we were looking for the stories, Paul, most of the stuff I found was not actually, uh, urban Indiana. It was mostly rural Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from the, the famous house in Gary, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. I'm sorry. We'll mock later. We'll mock later. <laughs> don't be upsetting those 200 demons. So don't worry, I have notes. I have notes about the 200 goddamn demons. Anyways, so that is going to be our topic for this episode. Indiana haunts me. Uh, so named, of course, for the wonderful R. Dean Taylor song. And uh, uh, yeah, we can't play it for you, so go look it up. I mean, you've probably heard it, and if you haven't, you're missing out. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. But yes, on this episode, we will be looking at hauntings in Indiana. But before we do, we got to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, you are the Indiana to our Larry Bird, which is to say we could not have achieved the heights we have without the start you've given us. And of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons, but we would especially like to thank our latest patrons. They are Kimberly Kelly, Glitter and Rot, Stephicus, and Rochelle Holmes. Guys, thank you, thank you, thank you. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate both our patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. Without you guys, the show simply would not go. I'd be doing food delivery so much I wouldn't have time to make (laughs) podcasts. And so, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. And if you'd like to join the team, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. For as little as a dollar a month on Patreon, at least, you get an ad-free feed. Who doesn't want that? Ads suck. And for Apple Podcast subscribers, unfortunately, we, there is only the one tier, but it gets you access to all of the goodies. And you'll find out more about that at the end of the show. But again, if you want to support what we do, and again, it means a lot, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys or sign up to GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts. One last thing, shout out to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and composer Jerry Smith. You can find more from Jerry at rainydaysforghosts.bandcamp.com or by searching for Rainy Days for Ghosts everywhere you get your tunes. We also wanted to congratulate Jerry on a a recent win he had. He was invited to participate in Scored to Death, a horror film music tribute, which is a uh, recent LP coming out. 
And he is on there with some really, really talented people, including Steve Moore and Alan Howarth. And Alan Howarth composed the music for, I believe, Halloween 4, among many, many other things, which is super cool because Halloween 4 is one of Jerry's, actually, I think might be Jerry's favorite film. So big congratulations to Jerry. Again, that's Scored to Death, a horror film music tribute, volume one. You can find that, I think, pretty much everywhere you get your music. And you can support Jerry by searching for Rainy Days for Ghosts and Street Witch on streaming platforms everywhere. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Floating Man. My grandpa was always a hunter. It's not uncommon here in the Midwest, but he particularly enjoyed it. Always out there with his buddy Earl finding new places to hunt and even approaching landowners about otherwise private properties. One time, he and Earl got permission to hunt on this one huge patch of private land. I want to say it was something like a hundred acres of Indiana forest near to the border with Michigan. The day before their hunt, Grandpa and Earl had hiked into the bush to set up their tree stands and then returned the following day around 1 p.m. The blinds were a couple miles into the forest, and I remember my grandfather saying it was deep, heavy bush. He and Earl got set up and began to watch for deer. But as the day went on and the sun began to get lower in the sky, not a single deer passed. Finally, the light had faded enough they needed to start hiking back to the truck if they wanted to get there before dark. As it happened, they didn't make it back to the truck before the sun had fully set, so Grandpa and Earl broke out their flashlights. It was with about a mile to go that they saw it. Something crouched in front of them, facing away. Grandpa and Earl stopped dead in their tracks. He told me it looked like a bald white guy with a black and white striped shirt. Earl spoke at first, asking the man what he was doing out there and if he was okay. The man never said anything back, but he turned around, looked at them, and levitated away up into the treetops before disappearing. Without a word between them, Grandpa and Earl sprinted to the truck and never again went back to that land. And, uh, well, this is yet another check in the box of this is why we do not go in the forest. I know we have listeners who like hiking and you're all insane. I love you, but you're crazy. Uh, but... This is like you, you basically discovered a boxing referee. Is it ref? Is that right? Referee? Is that the right word? Yes, that yeah. is the correct term for that. Yeah. So you, you went Sport. and found a boxing referee out there and, and, and then he went into the sky. This is on you. Had you just stayed home and played Far Cry 6 like I've been doing, none of this shit would have happened. <laughs> yes. Levitating figures are very rare. I can only think of a couple of examples where I've heard of people. I remember a guy many years on Ghost to Ghost with Art Bell who was disturbed in the middle of the night by strange noises in his house. He got up with his gun to go and oh uh, check that it wasn't an intruder. Was this Oscar uh, Pistorius? Because he... I don't think I want to know how the story ends. <laughs> as he got into his hallway, he could see this thing peeking out from the doorway and he kind of made a noise, and it just, he said it went up 
like a blind. Like when you pull a blind, it just went straight up through the ceiling. And he made that noise, he went <laughs> I don't even know what I would do at that point. Because it, like, when it's in your house, right, that's upsetting. Actually, that reminds me of um, uh, a little while ago, I read the, the, a book called The Gun by C.J. Chivers. It's about the history of, of automatic, automatic rifles. And he talks about how, the author talks about how the Tommy gun was not really very popular and they, because they, they tried to basically sell it to like, for home defense to people in rural areas. And weirdly, no one was really crazy about the idea of just blasting into the darkness of their lounge at three in the morning. <laughs> right, yeah. Hello? Say hello wow. to my little friend. Yeah. But yeah, I've never understood that. Like, I, I mean, I get, I, I know why you, you use firearms for, for home protection, but, oh man, especially when you're just waking up, there's so much potential for that to go wrong. Uh, anyways, we, we won't, we won't dwell on the gun thing. Cause already I can feel some people getting ready to write pissed off emails. I'm not going to read them, but they're writing them. <laughs> you need to have the adaptability of the average Brit to be able to turn any household object into a weapon of protection. See, that's it. Every, every time I, I watch you sleep, you know, and you, you detect me, you wake up and then you start swinging that toaster by the cord. And I'm always very impressed. Yep. Yes, you've got to be, uh, you, you've got to know how to handle a toaster. I feel like this is just a Sheffield thing, mostly. <laughs> it's Tuesday. It's, uh, it's toaster fight night down at the forum. <laughs> Charity box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why the referee was there. It was toaster fight night in the forest. Yes. Yes, that uh, ancient Peak District custom. <laughs> toaster combat. <laughs> uh, probably somewhere I, we're coming I up to that so. time of year where the uh, sword dancers will congregate in, in little areas of Sheffield over Christmas doing the sword dance I'm sorry the sword dance sword <laughs> oh okay I have to know what is this so it's a it's an old tradition it's very similar to um, a typical kind of folk dance where you have a group of individuals who dance and perform with a series of swords are traditionally on Boxing Day. Interesting. So do they juggle them or do they sword fight or? No, they kind of just do sort of a dance with the swords and then they put them on the floor. It's a bit very similar to when they do something similar in Scotland. I've forgotten the term of it now. And they do a dance over a sword. So there's, there's a tradition in the UK of, of people dancing over swords and waving them around a lot. Okay. I mean, I'm all down for a sword-based uh, sword frivolity. I mean, that sounds like fun. Yeah. Well, we do strange things around there. We've got a place in, in Derbyshire where they have a, a game of, it's called, uh, oh, is it called Shrove Ball? Because it starts on Shrove Tuesday, which is near okay. Pancake Day, one of our numerous random days of the year where we eat strange things. And then... Um, they have That's Mardi Gras for you Americans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they have two teams, the uppers and the downers, and there's a big ball, and the whole village gets involved. So there's like three, 400 people all trying to get the ball from one end of the village to the other, uh, and it goes on for a couple of days. Okay. I mean, that sounds like a good time. Now, now hang on. It, typically, when you tell me about something that sounds like fun, usually it ends in tragedy. So do they like kill and eat the losing team or this is just a fun thing 
Uh, no, there's, there's there's lots of serious injuries. You know, broken arms, broken jaws, broken legs, broken hands, noses. Okay, yeah, but but like no one goes in a wicker man at the end. Yeah, it's Derbyshire. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Who knows what goes on in the peaks at night? What happens in the peaks stays in the peaks. Maybe they take the captain of the losing team up to the mermaid's pool and let them, the uh, killer mermaid eat him. Who knows? I'm sorry, what? As a pool in the Peak District called the Mermaid's Pool, um, where a uh, flesh-eating mermaid is said to reside. How did that come about? Um, it's one of those stories where she apparently appears at certain times of the year. I think it might be Easter Monday, Easter Sunday. Um, and she'll ask you a, a, a question, and if you answer it wrong, then she'll just drag you in and eat you. Interesting. So, what's the upside to going to the mermaid's pond? Because obviously the downside is she drags you to a watery grave and I guess eats you. What is the upside? Do you get like a prize or something if you get the question right? No. Okay. <laughs> she, the upside is you don't die. Okay, well, I, I mean, that's great. I just feel like save yourself a lot of uncertainty by just not going there. This seems like the, like the peak district equivalent of the mice who run across ro- the road in front of cars just as like an adrenaline thing. Yes. Yeah. Who knows? It was often the, uh, an unsuspecting traveler more than often would, would run afoul of these strange things. There's lots of little weird things in the peak like that, like screaming skulls and boggart. Interesting. But I mean, that's the only f- flesh-eating mermaid. Uh, in in the Peak District, yes. It's, it's, as far as I'm aware, it's the only inland. Because it's not in a river or anything. It's just like a little pool. It's not a big pool either. You know, it's only like about 30 foot wide and about 30 foot long. It's not a big... It's more like a pond. <laughs> no wonder she's so pissed. If I had to live in a pond like that, it's bad enough being this like 400 square foot apartment. Yeah. Probably why she's so angry. That's what I'm thinking. You know, we just move her. Move her up to a nice little one bedroom, nice little one bedroom somewhere in like Doncaster, and she'll be so much happier. <laughs> Crawl space. I'm not a believer in what you might call the paranormal. I am, in fact, a scientifically minded person, and despite having many strange experiences, I'm not one to jump to explanations like ghosts or monsters. That being said, when there's something that I cannot explain, I would rather respond with, I don't know the answer at this time, but I'd like to know more. This story takes place in my small Indiana hometown. I was about eight years old at the time it occurred, putting it at around 2007 or so. My parents are divorced with my mum living in New Mexico, with my little brother and me living in Indiana with my father. At this point in his life, my dad drank often, and he would usually get angry and or violent when alcohol was involved. He never hit me or anything like that, but there were bouts of verbal abuse directed at me, my stepsister and my dad's girlfriend. There were a couple of instances when their alcohol fuel fights got physical as well. The point of mentioning this is that I was already under stress, I was young, and this most likely affected me mentally. During this time, we had recently moved to a new house on Main Street. This town was very old, a once booming hub of oil and natural gas production. However, by the time I lived there, those resources had all dried up and a town of 10,000 people was barely surviving off the one company that employed the majority of the able-bullied population still remaining. 
the house we moved into was around 200 years old. It was a huge house and even at that age I remember wondering how my dad was able to afford it given that we were generally pretty poor. It was two stories and had a huge backyard. It even had a pond in the back which seemed strange for a place on Main Street. I mentioned that this house was old because very little work had been done to it over the years and the house creaked with the old bones it very noticeably had. My dad was in a garage band and every Saturday he and his girlfriend would leave at around 6pm and stay out playing and drinking until very early into the morning. On the night my story occurred, my stepsister just so happened to be staying the night at a friend's house, so I was alone. I remember being in the living room watching cartoons on the Cartoon Network, a new show called The Misadventures of Flapjack, which I loved. The house creeped me out, and cartoons had always made me feel better. However, I think it was around maybe half past eight or nine o'clock, when the network turns into Adult Swim, that I decided it was time to go to bed. As I was reaching for the remote to turn off the TV, I remember hearing very audible footsteps coming down the stairs. I remember it spooking me, but it wasn't incredibly terrifying, because strange things happened to me all the time in that house. I looked down to my left to see the cat sitting on the couch with me, therefore I knew it wasn't him walking down those old, noisy stairs. Although I wasn't frightened, it was enough to make me stay up and watch some shows on Adult Swim, and about an hour later I was finally tired enough to force myself upstairs to my room. My bedroom was a square, on the wall opposite of the door, there was a window in the centre of it, and I had a TV on a dresser to the right of it. My bed was in the perpendicular to the window, opposite a closet and a green love seat. Now this closet was very old, and the doorknob was broken, so it never stayed closed. To make things worse, in the very back of the closet, directly facing my bed, was a crawl space. This crawl space had a piece of styrofoam over it, taped only onto the bottom so when the heat or air conditioning came on, it would cause this piece to flap. I never removed it because for some reason, I was afraid of entering that closet. Anyway, because the closet door was always open, and because of the position of my bed, I was almost always staring at this dark hole at the back of my closet. Usually it didn't bother me, but this night in particular, being home alone, it did. I decided I would combat this by closing the closet door and pushing the green love seat in front of it so it couldn't swing open. That did the trick and I went to sleep straight away. That night I had what I think was a dream in which I had a slightly out of body experience. It was like my eyes were positioned right above my head and I was looking down at my body while a female hand slowly and calmly made its way down the left side of my torso. When I woke in the morning, my sheets and blanket had been completely ripped off my bed and were balled up in a pile on the floor a good distance away from me. The green love seat had been moved out from in front of the closet and was now crookedly placed on the right side of the room, as if someone had just grabbed the left side and swung their arms as hard as possible. The closet door was wide open and the styrofoam piece on the crawl space had been ripped off. Now I remember noticing a pain on the left side of my body, but I never inspected it or gave it any thought, because I was obviously more concerned about the state of my room. Later that day, I noticed a stinging sensation on that part of my body, and so I finally looked at it. There were three distinct scratches 
down the left side of my torso. I decided to hide this story from my dad, and I've actually never told him of any of the experiences I've had. However, his girlfriend recently told me about the experiences that they had, and how they contributed to us eventually moving away from that house. Never live in a house with a crawl space. <laughs> what happens in a crawl space, Paul? Things crawl. Frogging. That's exactly my thinking. Um, as you know, and I, I mentioned this on a patron show, I had a weird thing happen in my apartment the other day. Um, I was recording the show. I was recording Host Adventures, actually. And I was really tired. And um, I just, yeah, I, I recorded it. I didn't edit it. But partway through the recording, I thought I heard footsteps in my apartment, like clear as day footsteps. And uh, I thought someone was in my place. So I got up. And of course, you know, if, if you look behind me, if you watch the video version of this, which you can find on YouTube, you'll find a link to the show notes. I have a, a backdrop behind me. It's just a Wayfair backdrop with some burlap and uh, uh, drapery on the back of it to kind of cut down on sound bounce. So I, I can't see anything behind me. So I got up and, and looked and there was no one there. Walked through the whole apartment. Nothing and no one. But I heard footsteps. And you can hear on the recording footsteps. <laughs> uh, you can also hear music, which really freaked me out. Uh, because there was no music playing uh, until actually I just figured this out as I was telling you off air. Uh, it turned out my microphone cord was picking up radio signals of all fucking things. Um, <laughs> and I'm now using a nice shielded cable recommended by, uh, by Jim Harold. But um, anyways, point being, I, I posted this up and one of our patrons said my first thought was frogging. And I thought, cool, thanks. <laughs> That's an awesome thought. Because <laughs> I sleep with my closet door wide open, and when I, because I, you know, when I finally go to bed, and I just now I love the thought of Lurch and the or or Slenderman standing in there, having lowered himself down from the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, for for actually, can you explain frogging to uh, to anyone who might not know what we're talking about? Yeah, so frogging is when somebody illegally moves into a part of your property that you are unaware of and lives there rent free. Yes, and a more horrifying thought I, I cannot countenance. I mean, if I had like a, it's bad enough if I had like an outbuilding or something on my property, but if you're living in my apartment, you know, as many of these stories are, you know, there's all these stories of people living in what should be tiny, tiny uninhabitable spaces, but they are, they're snuck up in there and they come out at night and steal your Chinese food leftovers and Use the bathroom and, and generally just be real fucking creepy. <laughs> Eat your cheese. They better not. That shit is expensive. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a strange phenomenon. I would almost think that is what's going on in this case, because, I mean, otherwise you're talking about a, something that moved a sofa, which is gross. Although I got to say the notion of someone, someone, uh, you know, touching you up is also pretty gross. But that's the thing. How could it have got out if the love seat was in the way? Surely it would have to be on the other side to move the love seat to then open the door. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So, it's, oh, Jesus. Yeah. So it's like it got in through the one way and out through the, oh, uh. I don't like this at all. This one, there's a few stories in this episode. We've got some non-traditional stuff in here and a few of them kind of, kind of bother me. And this is, this is one of those. Either they pushed their way out of the closet, which is a horror. Which I guess they could have done, depending on how the closet works. Like, if the closet door opens outward, 
So they could, if they push from the inside long enough or hard enough, presumably it would have moved the sofa. But then that means there was something in the closet strong enough to move a sofa from inside, which, not great. Yeah. Unless, of course, it was a vampire. Don't they have to be invited in? It might have been already invited in. Who says it has to be the person that lives there now? It might have been invited in already. I see. Now, this is an interesting question. How... Yeah, how how long-standing is the, the uh, invitation? Because I know I'm like a vampire, in that if you want me to come anywhere, you have to specifically invite me. I will never assume that the invitation extends to me, but I require it every single time. So, I mean, do you, you figure vampires are also as, uh, we'll say, generously neurodivergent as this, or do you think this is like a longer-standing thing? I don't know. It's not something I've actually pondered on, really, which is quite odd, considering some of the shit I do ponder on that, irrelevant really in the great scheme of things like the man's beard in the evil dead um so i'm i'm i don't know i don't think it's ever been really dove into does it apply to the property or the does it restrict itself to the person who invites you in but then i suppose if somebody invites you in then everybody in that property is fair game you don't need everybody, you know, you don't like kill somebody, go back out and say, right, can you invite me in? So I want to kill you. <laughs> Once you're in, you're in. Man, they talk about, that's like having shitty roommates who just let their friends steal your stuff. Mm. I mean, Christopher Lee never got invited in. He just used to hypnotize women and they collapsed at his feet. So I don't know. Is this one of those things that it's a movie rule that's been brought in? Like werewolves are only... If you get bit by one, which is in werewolf films rather than werewolf literature and legend. Oh, I didn't know that. That's not part of werewolf legend. No, it's all kinds of strange things. It can cause you to become a werewolf, like drinking water out of a paw. If you drink like a puddle with a paw, if you drink water out of it, if you're really thirsty, I don't know. Is that something people still do these days? But that might cause you to become a werewolf or wearing a, a belt of wolf skin. Or witchcraft would all create Interesting. So, I mean, that seems much like much more of a cautionary tale to stop stupid people from drinking dirty water. Hmm. Well, maybe, but I don't know. Indiana has a a strange number of werewolf stories for North American states. Really? Hmm. There's one about a Confederate soldier who was apparently a werewolf. No kidding. Hmm. So they're, they're not overly... That old uh, a legend, especially Indiana, obviously would have would have only been colonized probably around I don't know, eighteen hundred, late seventeenth century, uh, late eighteenth century, early nineteenth century perhaps. And so um, I'm not too sure. It's not obviously like the the legends of the Luke Garou, which came across with the French down to New Orleans and and such areas such as Louisiana and uh, Alabama and states like that. But, um, but yeah, Indiana's got a couple of werewolf stories, but the most famous one is about the Confederate soldier who was a werewolf. So how does that story go? So apparently it was a gentleman called Silas Shimmerhorn, which is a wonderful name. I'll say. <laughs> who was a native-born Hoosier, but um, despite being a Confederate, he, he essentially absconded. So he went AWOL from the army to get away from the Civil War. And um, he ran off and went to live in the hills and found a cave and he got some weapons and, and such like. And so he was able to live off the land for a while, but eventually he ran out of bullets and things like that. And then people began to see a strange man running with a pack of wolves. 
and the more they saw him, the more wolfen he became, until essentially he became a bipedal wolf that was running and leading this pack and lived in that particular area. And they were starting to eat people, lonely travellers lost in the woods and on the mountain. Oh. And so eventually he was tracked down and it was believed that he had completely lost his whole humanity and had transformed himself entirely into a wolf. And so they, they basically went to find him, farmed him. He scared them off because they couldn't believe that they'd encountered a werewolf. Uh, but the deaths and the loss of livestock began to become so much that they then created a posse that hunted them down and killed Silas and all his wolves. Interesting. I, that is, I, I, I've never actually heard an, uh, an American werewolf legend. It's one of those weird stories that then turns into something else, because even after their deaths, Silas and the wolf pack are still allegedly seen in that area today as a ghost. No kidding. So we've got a ghost werewolf. I got to tell you, two, not, two negatives not making a positive there. <laughs> To me, that's just a werewolf who can get you wherever you are. Yes. All right. Indiana, you continue to terrify me. <laughs> Trouble is, it's not the worst thing in Indiana. What's the worst thing in Indiana? Depends on your point of view. Leave Larry Bird alone, Paul. <laughs> hey, if I ever met a gigantic turtle, I'd be frightened. Okay, well, after the next segment, you must tell me about the gigantic turtle. The Beast of Busco. When I graduated back in 95, my family was living in Michigan, fairly close to the border with Indiana. Some friends that I'd played D&D with got all into ghost hunting and whatnot, and we'd often travel down around the Indiana side, which was around 45 minutes away. On this particular night, we had picked up my girlfriend Millie along the way, and I was sitting with her in the back while my buddies Rob and Jeff were in the front seat. We were on a somewhat secluded two-lane road with thick woods on the right side of us. I'm not trying to be vague at this point, I just don't remember about the area or exactly where we were. And Rob said something to the effect of, Don't trust what you see around here. I hear your eyes play tricks on you in this area. Almost on cue, we started seeing what basically looked like black fog or shadows darting and swimming across the road in the light of the headlights. We remained calm and kept going. After about a quarter mile, the road split. You can either go straight onto gravel or keep on the asphalt to the left. We took the left. At that point, we were driving slow, maybe five miles an hour. Millie and I were looking out my window, the passenger side, and about 15 feet into the woods, maybe 30 feet from us total, I saw what looked like a small, naked old man with his back to us, hunched over and eating something bloody and messy. My mind immediately went to folklore, and I thought of Redcap as soon as I saw it, even though it wasn't wearing anything. It was all a bit much to take in without thinking I was crazy, so I turned to Millie to make sure she was seeing it too. Her eyes were huge, and she was crying, tears streaming down her face. She was petrified. We told Rob and Jeff to floor it, that we need to go, because there's something in the woods. They hadn't seen it and were frantic to know what we'd seen, and drive by it again. And so, a hundred-ish yards later, when the road opened up for a turn, Rob whipped the car around and it died. This wasn't a clutch issue. It was an automatic, so I can't think of any good reason it would have quit. 
Millie quite literally started screaming in fear, and Rob told her to relax and tried the engine again. Thankfully, this time it turned over. However, the moment it did, headlights immediately turned on behind us. Mind you, it's pitch black out, there are no street lights, it's a heavily wooded area, and we hadn't seen another car in who knows how long. Never mind the fact that our car and headlights were just facing where this car appeared when we were trying to turn around. At this point, everyone fairly well decided, fuck this, we're obviously somewhere we shouldn't be, we are out. So, we ended up driving back by the area where we saw the man, and there was nothing there now. No little naked man, no deer. I'm pretty sure it was a deer he was eating when I first saw it. We got to the area that branched off to the gravel road when we first went into this area, and as we approached it, another set of headlights turned on from this gravel road as well. All four of us now losing our minds, thinking we had stumbled onto some occult shit by accident, and all we wanted to do was go home. We drove back out to the main two-lane road, and thankfully both cars went their separate ways uneventfully. It's been over 20 years, and I still get chills thinking about this. The little naked gnarly man all bunched over eating the deer is just as vivid now as it ever was. A lot of weird shit happened when I lived in that area, but this was the most extreme. To describe the red cap further, from what I remember it was naked. I believe it would have been maybe three and a half feet tall if it stood upright and really stocky. It was squatting down low, ass almost to the ground while it ate, and also somewhat hairy, as in hairy like that one hairy friend we have whose shoulders and back are covered. Yeah, back off, buddy. There was blood all over its hands and forearms, and it was holding what looked like the leg of a deer. There was a mess of the rest of it at its feet. I had about a three-quarter view of it, mostly its back. I didn't get a good view of its face, a little of it, like as it glanced over its shoulder at us nonchalantly as we drove by. I just remember it looked old and menacing, like a furious little 70-year-old man. Unnerving, to say the least. And Paul, I gotta say, uh, contrary to what this poster thinks, uh, you can actually stall an automatic. I know this because I have done it. Back when I was delivering food during the pandemic, I, uh, of course, you know, your, your fortunes are um, determined by how fast you do the job. So I dropped food at this one place, got in my car, whipped out of the driveway, uh, crunched it back into drive, and uh, yeah, just just shut right off. So you can't actually stall an automatic. <laughs> That's good to know. Anyways, what are your thoughts on the red cap story? Interesting. I've never heard of one in, in North America. Obviously, the red cap is a traditional Anglo-Scottish border malevolent creature that is said to hang around old castles and be quite a, a nasty piece of work. And Indiana does have such reports of creatures of that nature. They have uh, hairy creatures of all descriptions from uh, obviously quite a numerous number of, of Bigfoot sightings. Obviously, we've mentioned werewolves, but they've also got stories of creatures that would be classed as a Pukwudgie, even though Pukwudgies tend to be um, more northern in their uh, area of, of sightings, allegedly, obviously around the Hockamock Swamp. And uh, Bridgewater Triangle obviously has a lot of Pukwudgie stories, but, um, you know, a lot of Native American tribal nations refer to the, the, the smaller hairy people so and indiana is one of those states with such stories very cool uh now before we move on to the next story you were going to tell me about a turtle <laughs> oscar the turtle who uh, allegedly lived in a 
lake on a farm uh, in the town of, of Busco. Um, so he was apparently first spotted at the end of the 19th century by a farmer called Falk, I think his name was. Um, and he was quite happy that there was a, a giant turtle living in his in his lake. And um, and so he let him live there. No problems. Uh, the farmer and the turtle lived happily side by side for, for decades. And then the farmer sold the turtle to a new guy in 19... I mean, this is a fairly recent story. 1948. And that's when Indiana went beast of busco crazy because essentially you had all kinds of characters turning up at this farm trying to find this giant turtle because it was supposed to be 500 pounds as big as a car um living in this lake terrifying people and uh, and so you ended up with some kind of sort of carnival of monster hunters arriving to try and bag this and people were chucking dynamite in the lake and sending boats out and people were filming it and all sorts and um eventually they came up with the decision to drain the lake and uh whether oscar knew or what no turtle was to be found and the beast of busco survived for another day but um to all intents and purposes it was a giant snapping turtle i like to imagine he's out there living his best life you know I, I, when nick and i went to hawaii back in uh, 2014 we were in Oahu and there's this one beach and I, I can't remember what it's called. It might be Turtle Beach, but I don't know that it is. But anyways, it's on, I think, the north side of the island and tortoises just hang out there. And man, I could have just sat there all day watching these guys and they're not doing anything, right? They're just, they're just hanging out, but I just like looking at them. I, I can't explain it. They're just great. They're like objectively great. And I found out that um, they have kind of people watching all the time because some people have killed a, a few of them in the past. And I was apoplectic with rage. I could not imagine why you would want to hurt this thing. It, it is just the best. I, I What a garbage species are we? Because, yeah, tortoises are the shit and they have hurt no one. Well, no one who didn't deserve it, at least. I like tortoises. They're very funny. They make funny noises as well. Do they? I didn't know they made noises. Have you seen that footage of one falling in love with a shoe? <laughs> nope. No, I have not. And it basically tries to have sex with the shoe, and it's just going... <laughs> eh, eh, eh. Nope, but I'm going to watch it right now. <laughs> Tortoise sex shoe. There it is. Oh, yeah, look at him. It's the noise it makes, though. It's hilarious. It's like, uh, uh. Yeah, look at him go. <laughs> go for it, little guy. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, Paul, you and I probably don't look any more dignified when we're at it. <laughs> I always take my shell off. <laughs> Clap. My family lives in rural Indiana. For privacy reasons, I don't want to say exactly where, but it's far enough away from people that you don't generally have randos wandering around. On the night this story happened, my parents weren't home, so my siblings and I were home alone. My sister was in her bedroom, and my brother was on his computer a couple of rooms away, just leaving me in the living room by myself. We've a lot of dogs, 
but for some reason only one of them, Bell, was outside. I don't remember what led up to me going outside to let her in, but I think it was about to start raining or something. Our garage leads to our backyard, so I went through it and stood in the doorway, looking out across the yard. I couldn't see Bell anywhere, but then our yard is two acres, so I thought nothing of it, and I stepped a little further out into the doorway. We have this big concrete block outside the garage, acting as a sort of step down from the doorway, and our garage is slightly elevated. So I was now standing on this concrete and calling out her name. Still nothing. This was unusual for her. She's a very sweet and energetic dog and always comes when called. I called her name again, but I still didn't see or hear her. At this point, I was confused and starting to feel a little bit of concern. But then I heard clapping. The kind of clapping you do when you're calling a dog. I stiffened slightly. It sounded like it was coming from the side of the house. After it stopped, I slowly stepped off the concrete block onto the grass and looked around to the side of the house, where I'd heard this clapping. There was no one there. I was really scared at this point, and the clapping was so clear as that there was no way I could have imagined it. I took a step back, closer to the concrete, ready to make a run for it, before calling out for my dog one more time not wanting to leave her out there. A couple of seconds later, the clapping started back up again. I had no clue what was making the sound and found myself absolutely terrified. It was then I heard a man's voice very clearly saying my dog's name. Bell. I'm a girl, so it couldn't have been an echo. It was a separate person calling my dog's name, somewhere from the direction of the field by my yard, and I didn't recognise the voice. It sounded decently close by, but far enough away to know that I wasn't in any immediate danger. But the voice sounded almost mocking, like it was making fun of me, as if it was amused by my obvious fear. Only a few seconds later, Belle came running up to me from the other side of the yard. I grabbed her and ran inside, locking the door behind me. I sat on the couch in the living room, scared out of my mind. My sister, still in her bedroom, and my brother was still on his computer. I was alone in the room with just our dogs and trying to make sense of what just happened. After a while, my parents got home and I told all my family what had happened. No one believed me. The only person who even remotely believed in me was my mum, and she was clearly seeing how distressed I was about the whole thing. So, I mean, the thing that bothers me about that more than anything is like, even excusing all the paranormal possibilities there, that's just a stranger in the woods. That's bad. That's, mm. uh, that's not, I, I don't know why your parents wouldn't give some credence to that. Like that's just a creep out there watching your kids at night. Be a little more upset, guys. Yeah, that is a strange reaction. You know, you live in a rural property away from people. And even, like you say, even if it's not paranormal, that's pretty creepy behavior regardless. In fact, that's actually more worrying than anything paranormal. Because, I mean, like we were talking with, uh, with Ben James on the last episode, people are far, far more dangerous than any, any of the other topics we've ever brought up on this show. And, and like, I, was, I had a look uh, briefly, and I, I'm not going to get into specific cases because some of the cases are quite distressing, but there are a number of stories of fugitives being caught in the woods in Indiana. Like, it's not impossible to think that there was someone out there for them to just go, eh, 
uh, is, I mean, maybe I guess if you just want to deal with it, but I feel like sticking your head in the sand is a weird answer to your kids saying, a man talked to me from outside at night. You know, you only have to look at Ted Krasinski, you know, the Unabomber, who was living in a shed in Montana for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of creepy guy you don't want living near you, you know, and he was <sighs> hanging about and trashing his, his neighbor's trucks and tractors and all sorts, wasn't he? So I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that about him. I always thought he kind of kept to himself out there. No. The, the neighbors were interviewed not long after. I saw it again recently because obviously he passed away in May, I think it was, this year. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and so they were being interviewed and, and I think they got a daughter and she was saying she, she kept bumping into him in the woods just wandering about on his own. But yeah, the tractors kept getting smashed up and stuff get right. I think rice was poured in the fuel tank and oh, things man. were things were taken apart and yeah, it was a lot of weird things. Then and they knew it was him. They never caught him doing it. Jesus, I mean, one of the things I, I love, boy, I both love and find distressing is when you see photos that people have picked up on their trail cams of again not paranormal things, but just oh, there's a person out here where there shouldn't be a person. They're not dressed for hunting. They're not dressed for whatever. They're just wandering out there in street clothes. And you know, quite often they like kind of look like bush people, you know, so people who just sort of live out in the trees. Again, that freaks me out more than anything, uh, anything uh, uh, supernatural. Because again, that is someone who's just decided to live according to ex- their own rules and their own rules only. And that's, again, that's terrifying. Yeah, there's plenty of, plenty of room for strange people out there yeah actually that's something i wanted to talk about briefly um and i forgot to bring it up when we talked when we did the first story i thought the one about the guy whose grandpa went hunting with his buddy i thought hunting started early in the day not at noon you know like <laughs> i thought because like the sun starts to set because you i think you usually go hunting in the fall and again i know fuck all about hunting so if you're a listener and you hunt you know let me know but i thought you go hunting in the fall and which would be, you know, it gets dark early. So going in, like, I thought you'd go out in the morning. Depends what you're hunting, I suppose. I guess, yeah. I, I don't know. I thought maybe Grandpa was having a sort of a bit of a broke back situation, which is fine. You know, I'm just saying uh, the timing seems suspicious to me. But then I, again, I don't know anything about hunting. So yeah, <laughs> hunters out there, let me, let me know. Am I, am I just being overly suspicious about Grandpa and whatever his friend was named? Um, so I don't know. Seemed, seemed odd to me. Mm. But, I, I see, yeah, yeah, you, you think about that far too much, I think. Whereas I just thought, <laughs> I'm just thinking, well, that just wouldn't pick up on that. I'd just be like, well, okay, it depends what they're after. I mean, is that when Bigfoot's wandering about? Maybe they're looking for a giant turtle. I mean, it did seem odd that, I don't know, going out later in the day, I mean, we're going out hunting. Yeah, we'll be back. I don't know, if I've got a day off, there's not much I'd, I'd be doing before midday, I have to say. Well, that's, that's true, I mean... My work days, obviously, that's obviously not a thing I do either, so I get it. <laughs> well, that's the perfect start of a work day for me. What's that? Midday. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mind you, as I get older, I'm finding that I, I do, I, and I think this is just a biology thing that happens to everyone, I do find that I get up earlier. So, like, I'm waking up 9 or 10 in the morning, not 9, like 8 or 9 in the morning now, and I'm like, ugh. You know, where does, it used to be 10 or 11. Now, if I get up after 9.30, I kind of feel like I've fucked up my day. Which is bad because I still want to stay up till two. I just have had less sleep before that. <laughs> it's not a great situation. Yeah, I, I hate waking up. 
Oh, it's it's the worst. It's absolutely the worst. And actually, when, the couple times I had to get up to do that short film, because obviously I had to get up at like six in the morning to be ready for my Ooh. pickup at whatever time. Yo, what I know. Time? Apparently, there's a six in the morning too. What? I don't know when it started. I don't know uh, it, but it's there and it's gross. And I finally understood something that you were telling me about, which is you told me that you don't eat breakfast because in the morning, kind of takes you a while to feel like you want food. And I've never really had that. Usually I wake up and I'm like, all right, it's go time. But waking up at six in the morning, nope. I could stomach coffee and that was it. I did the, the thought of food. I didn't eat anything until, you know, they fed us that uh, Little Caesars pizza at, at like noon. By that point, even Little Caesars tasted good. But yeah, I could not countenance the thought of food. It was just gross. <laughs> yeah, it's always the, always the problem I have if I'm staying in a hotel or, or something, that you've got to be down f- for 10 a.m. to have breakfast. And it's like, oh, it's like torture for me. Yeah, as I say, usually not an issue. But uh, yeah, this was not, not happening. I woke up at six and I think I was just mad at God. <laughs> the Secret Room. My uncle and family moved into this house in Terre Haute, Indiana, back in the early 1990s. It was a large, two-story, shingle-style house, corner lot, that was painted red with a creepy basement. Most of that basement was unfinished, with dirt floors and rock-slash-stone walls. It had a detached garage and a secret room, which I'll get to later. Our first visit to our family's new house was in Christmas 1991. We were going to drive up from Florida and spend the week of Christmas with my family. Before our visit, I remember speaking with my cousin. We'll call him CJ. He was the middle child of three. Before going up there, he would tell me that I was going to see some ghosts when I came to visit. I laughed it off and told him he was crazy, as at that time I 100% did not believe ghosts were real. He would go on to tell me that he had often seen numerous ghosts in his house, predominantly upstairs where his room was located. He said that only one of the ghosts would ever step foot in his room, The others would remain in the hallway and other areas of the house. Again, I laughed at his claims and told him I would believe it if I saw it. When we arrived for Christmas week, I was surprised how large the house was. It was easily the largest house I'd ever stayed in, and all I could think about was playing hide-and-seek or manhunt in there with my cousins. I was staying with my cousin, who told me about the ghost in his room as he had bunk beds. My parents stayed downstairs in a spare bedroom. As I walked upstairs to my cousin's room, I remember being in awe of how long his hallway was, but there were only three doors in that long hallway. The first door on the left was the bathroom. The next door on the right was the bedroom of my cousin Nicole, and the final door at the very end of the hallway was CJ's room. His room was massive. It looked like a mini ballroom. As he walked in straight ahead was his bunk bed and a large window behind the bed. He had his TV and video game system set up to the right and numerous toys and Hot Wheels race trucks to the left. There was also a small crawlspace door along the left side wall. The first night my cousin kept me up telling me everything he had seen in his room and throughout the house. It did spook me out, but I was still very skeptical of his story. One thing that I did notice was that CJ had very dark circles under his eyes. He said it was because he could not sleep very well in the house and would often stay up most nights trying to sleep. On that first night, I listened to his stories and we went to sleep. Nothing out of the ordinary occurred. That would change the very next day. On my second day at the house, after we finished playing outside, CJ and I went upstairs to watch a movie and play with some toys. We set up his Hulk Hogan tent in the middle of the room and pretended it was a stadium as we played with his wrestling figures. 
We had set up some spy tech toys around the room, one being a motion sensor that you could set at a door, and if it opened, the toy would beep. We set it up because my cousin Nicole would often barge in and mess with our toy setup so that that toy would alert us if she entered the room and we'd know she was coming. Shortly after we started playing with the action figures in the tent, the tent started shaking lightly. I noticed it at first, but I wasn't too alarmed. Not more than a minute later, it started shaking rapidly. I automatically assumed it was Nicole and looked out the door, but couldn't see her. By the time I stuck my head back in the tent, the shaking had stopped. CJ was frozen, still looking out of the unzipped window of the tent at nothing. Seconds later, it started shaking again. I jumped out of the tent and witnessed it shake for a quick second before it stopped. I blamed CJ for somehow doing this and trying to scare me. I then thought it could have been Nicole, but as I opened his bedroom door, the spy tech toy sensor sounded off. That proved no one else other than CJ and myself were in that room, and as I looked and found out, Nicole was laying on her bed watching TV. Even though that scared me, I still wasn't convinced that a ghost could have done that. I told my parents about it at dinner, and they kind of laughed it off. My uncle chimed in and said, Did CJ's imagination get to you as well? CJ had told his parents about the various experiences he'd had in the house, but they wouldn't even entertain the possibility of it being a ghost. They said it was his imagination. That night, I slept on the bottom bunk, and CJ slept on top. The events that night will never leave my memory. As I started dozing off, CJ reached around the back side of the bunk to get my attention and told me to look down the hall. The bunk bed was perfectly positioned where depending on which side you slept on, you could look right down the long upstairs hallway. Where I was laying, all I had to do was turn my head and I could get that vantage point. As I looked down the hall, I saw a very slender and tall man he had on a toboggan and a long coat. I could distinctly make out his face and it appeared to be covered in soot or a dusty powder. He was walking very slowly towards our room, but I couldn't see anything under his knees, like his legs stopped there. It scared the shit out of me, and he disappeared before getting to the room, which was a few seconds, even though it felt like an eternity. I was so frightened that I couldn't move. I just turned my head and buried it into my pillow. I recall shaking from fear, when a few minutes later, I was overcome by an ice-cold sensation coming from the side of my body that faced that door. I slowly turned around and saw a woman, clear as day. She had tattered clothing and was holding a cat. She was literally inches from me. She was also musky, like she had on stale perfume, but it was a very light smell. This may sound cheesy, but she resembled the Fratelli mom from the Goonies, as in body type size. I didn't see her face. I couldn't even scream for my parents. I again turned around and got deep under my sheets with the pillow over my head. As soon as I woke up, I went downstairs and told my mum. This time my mum didn't shrug it off like before. She said everything would be fine, and some things just can't be explained. A few days later, it was Christmas. After we opened our presents, we went outside to ride bikes and rollerblade. My mum went upstairs to take a shower, and she was alone in the house. As she was in the shower, she heard the door open and footsteps getting closer towards her, 
and she assumed it was my stepdad. But it wasn't. He was outside with us. She spoke out to him but didn't receive any response. And as she pulled back the shower curtain, she noticed the open door and was quickly hit in the face with a cold burst of air. It knocked her back a few steps but she didn't fall. Her towel and clothes then fell off the bathroom countertop onto the ground. After finishing in the shower, she walked outside and asked my stepdad if he'd been into the bathroom at any time, which he hadn't. She told me this years after this visit, when I was late into my teens. She also told me that the house had creeped her out even after our first night there, and she felt like she was being watched, and also felt her breath on her neck whilst walking alone down the hallway. We left a few days after Christmas. I felt so terrible that CJ had to continue living in that house and be tormented like he was. It wasn't soon after that that the activity picked up, and my aunt and uncle started having their own experiences, which ultimately led them to selling the house and moving a few blocks away. I want to share some of the paranormal events that they encountered. These are the experiences they had, and are not in any particular order, simply accounts that I recall them telling me about. They had an old German shepherd named Yankee. He had bad hip problems and was an indoor-outdoor dog. He loved staying in their detached garage and would hide in there during storms. One night something spooked him so bad that he jumped out the small window located in the garage that was almost six feet off the ground. They found him pawing at the back door. Once they went on vacation, and when they got back they found that their huge 500-gallon fish tank busted open and the fish were all dead. This tank had very thick glass and there was no signs of anything falling and breaking it. My youngest cousin was at the top of the stairs, and Nicole was at the bottom. They were playing with a slinky. All of a sudden, Nicole said it appeared like her brother was pushed from behind, as his body slingshotted forward and he fell down the stairs, breaking his clavicle. She didn't see anyone push him, just described what it looked like. Before they moved out of the house, they decided to further explore that crawlspace in CJ's room. They thought the crawlspace didn't lead anywhere, but that was not the case. The crawl space contained bags of rat poison that appeared to be stored in there for a very long period of time. After removing all of the bags, they noticed the little room was in fact a crawl space. They crawled in there and wiggled through the tight space for about eight feet until they found a hidden room at the end. My uncle said the room appeared like a time capsule. It had inches of dust on everything and many cobwebs. The air was stagnant and there was an old desk Boxes of old worn shoes and newspapers from the 1930s and 40s littered throughout. They were surprised that they had lived in this house for a few years and never knew the room existed. Their landlord never mentioned it and was surprised himself when they brought it up. The final straw, which caused my family to break their lease and move out early, was the night of CJ's first Little League baseball game of the season. CJ and my uncle were already at the ball fields. My aunt got Nicole and Joe in the car, which was parked in the detached garage that was directly behind the house. The driveway of the garage faced the side street. My aunt went around the house and turned off all the lights except for a lamp in the living room, the kitchen light, and the exterior lights. It was already dusk by this time. As they pulled out of the garage driveway and drove around to the front side of the house, my aunt looked up and noticed that every single light in the house was on. It stopped her in her tracks. As she continued to stare at the house, she noticed the curtains in CJ's room open and a dark shadow of a person in the window. 
My aunt drove to the ball fields that night and told my uncle it was time to move. A short time later, they did. Numerous neighbors knew that the house was haunted and would often tell my uncle and aunt. My cousins would also hear it at school as local kids all knew about the house's history. Alright, so yet another story where the parents don't really give a shit until it affects them, which I feel like is just sort of a a great metaphor for the world as it stands right now. (laughs) The previous generation doesn't give a shit because it doesn't affect them. No, no, you're just imagining things. Go back to sleep. Yeah, 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 yeah. All the choke marks around your neck from the space ghost. Ah, it's just, it's uh, psychosomatic. Yes, and you need to stop leaving soot in the hallway, CJ. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> oh. Why is there blood on the ceiling? Whose blood is that? How'd you bleed all the way up there? Goddamn kids. What was in the vertical plane? There were footsteps on the wall? Yeah. Yeah. Were you dancing on the ceiling again? Lionel. I was going to say, yeah, Lionel Richie's been here. <laughs> this this reminded me of that, as I mentioned, that bullshit story uh, about the, the Gary, Indiana demon house. <laughs> yeah. And I wondered, could you, could you tell the, the listeners, for those who don't know, what the, the Gary uh, demon house, I guess, wasn't? This house was apparently the most demon-infested house ever. And this magic number of 200 appears, which is one of those spiritual trends that you'll notice seem to originate from certain areas that this number of 200 has some kind of biblical link and therefore it keeps being repackaged and repurposed into the modern era whatever the reasons were for this story and this house and this family apparently being terrorized by these entities that made their life a living hell I think most people who have looked at it with a critical and balanced eye find it dubious, to say the least. I feel like all you need to say is Zach Baggins bought the house. (laughs) (laughs) They had to get in there before the Warrens got it. The one thing he's got above them is the buying power. That's it. The the 200 thing, actually. I'm aware of that in the Bible in the Book of Enoch. Because the, the angel sort of takes, guides Enoch through the afterlife, or not even the afterlife, but kind of like the in-between place. And he shows him the binding place of the angels. And in, you know, according to the story, in the binding place of the angels, there are 200 angels who are imprisoned for the crime of mating with humans. And they are, they are the fallen angels. And you know, again, as the story goes, their children were the giants. Yeah, like the, the offspring of, of angels and and earthlings um and and i know that absolutely i think unintentionally but very very funny movie the pope's exorcist which everyone should go see i don't mean that as a dig i had a great time watching that movie again you cannot possibly take it seriously but it is a ton of fun and that also has the 200 demons thing so i I, anytime anything like corresponds directly to uh popular scripture i just think okay well that's this is something they pulled out of their ass and yeah that house all the stories from the Gary Demon Horseshit House are very bulk standard. You know, I have watched The Exorcist too many times and need some way to um, try and sell this story so we can pay off our house. And of course, Baggins uh, bought it. And I think, I'm not 100%, but I think he might have a portion of the stairway in his haunted museum in Vegas. Because I know there is a place where there is a a piece of a stairway in or like a staircase in that museum because i was in the museum years ago 
but I don't know if it's from this house. Probably found it in the woods. <sighs> That's it. You've done it now, Paul. Now I'm mad. Yes. It reminds me of, of some of my, my younger days where on occasions I would have too many drinks and I would hide in bushes for friends to walk past and then appear as Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> that might have been what happened in the story. Strange things have happened. Just Paul hanging out in the crawl space, had a couple too many beers. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, if I'd had a couple of beers, yeah, I'd be thinking, I tell you what, it'd be a right good idea. Let's go into that crawl space. <laughs> Let's go explore the bell tower of this uh, haunted hotel. I've <laughs> <laughs> only had three bottles of wine. Come on. That's How it. dangerous can it be? And we're just at about the right point where this makes sense. So, yeah. I've only had about five or six Guinness. What could go wrong? All right, folks. Well, that is our, our very fractured uh, Haunted Indiana episode. Again, we, we, had to, we had to take a break partway through because I, I think uh, my build, yeah, either demons or my building was built by gorillas. Uh, one of the two. Perhaps it was the Indiana ghost we didn't mention. The naked swimmer, Diana of the Dunes. I feel like we have time to hear about this at least. So there's a, a story about a particular area, the Indiana Dunes where this story has been around about a hundred years where people claim to have seen a, a, a beautiful woman swimming naked in the lake that uh, adjoins the dunes. And uh, a lot of people thought it was, it was all stuff and nonsense. And then they discovered it was actually uh, a woman uh, called Alice who had moved there because she was losing her eyesight. And therefore she always thought that that was the most beautiful place she'd ever seen in the world. And so as her eyesight was failing, she thought she'd move back there to try and enjoy what she could before she lost her, her eyesight. And she was a very attractive lady and uh, was known for uh, cooling off by taking a, a nude swim every now and again. Um, and then she ended up shacking up with a someone who was suspected of being a murderer. And uh, she oddly died. She was poisoned after giving birth to their second child. And, uh, and since then, her ghost has been said to be seen wandering along the beach and swimming in the lake and uh, captivating passers-by, still with her paranormal beauty. Well, that was a roller coaster, but I guess we ended on a, on a good note. <laughs> yeah. Oh Sight loss, ghosts, death, poison and murder. That was like a whole Ghost Story Guys episode in like three minutes. The condensed version. Might be onto something there. Available in Clamato flavor. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the 
very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now, because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be, it's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT, that's S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, please know that we've both been where you are and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. The ghost story guys are Luke Greensmith, who helps find our stories. He's also host of the Luke Lore podcast. You can find that everywhere. Fine podcasts live. Tanya Downing, who manages our Facebook community and helps with editing. Joseph Camo, who helps manage our YouTube account. You can also find him as host of the Cardinal Rule on YouTube and as co-host of Weird Together with me, where we talk about the sociology of horror films. Adam Lynch, who edits our videos and is also co-host of the Weekly Creep podcast with Dulce. Sarah Kent, who manages our Reddit community. Our paranormal conductor is Mr. Brennan Storr. And of course, my friend and co-host, the one, the only, the inimitable Paul Bestel, host of Mysteries and Monsters. Paul, my friend, what's coming up on Eminem? Skinwalkers, werewolves, and dogmen will be terrorizing people as I speak with author Pamela Kinney in regards to her book covering the strange metamorphosis of these such creatures around North America and we dive into some of those particular legends and discuss the conundrum of what is the difference between a werewolf and a dogman and then coming up the week after that I'm delighted to welcome Luke Phillips to talk about his latest book Rogue, which for me is the best fiction I've read this year. It is a phenomenal study of a Sasquatch who seems to suddenly decide it wants to eat people. Done in such a way that I wasn't expecting it, and it's got a plot twist halfway through that I never saw coming. Um, uh, because I wasn't expecting to have two types of cryptids in, in a book about monstrous Sasquatch. But it's not what you may think it is. Okay, well, I know you were telling me about Rogue in our patron bonus, so I'm really eager to read that. Yeah, well, when the shit hits the fan and you've a bloodthirsty Sasquatch chasing you down trying to eat everybody, 
who are you going to call? Oh, oh. all right. Well, where can everyone find you online? You can find Mysteries and Monsters across all social media platforms and podcast sites as well. I am on Letterboxd, Threads, Blue Sky, and Instagram as Largely the Truth. I'm also co-host of the Weird Together podcast. Again, that's where we look at horror movies through a sociological lens. I co-host that with Dr. Joseph Camo, as I mentioned, host of The Cardinal Rule. And on our most recent episode, we talked about the film Suitable Flesh, which is a loose adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Thing on the Doorstep. It's a very horny movie that led to some really interesting conversations about the nuclear family. So you you can find that everywhere podcasts live or linked in the show notes. And again, that's Weird Together. You can also find the Ghost Story Guys on Facebook. We're on Facebook as Ghost Story Guys, strangely. We also have a group called the Ghost Story Guys Finally Made a Group. And we're on Instagram as the Ghost Story Guys. Oh, and of course, Reddit as r slash Ghost Story Guys podcast. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you want to support us, we would very much appreciate it. Even a dollar a month helps. It, uh, if everyone who listens to the show, even half the people who listen to the show gave a dollar a month, it would be a life-changing amount of money, actually for both of us. So again, anything you can spare, patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys or GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts. And you'll get access not only to an ad-free feed, but all of our bonus shows like Me and Paul, which is our monthly live show. You get access to uh, host adventures, the bonus conversations that we do with every main episode, all kinds of cool stuff. And again, that's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys or sign up for GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts. On the subject of guest spots, Paul, we have two guest spots that should actually be out. One will be out by the time this episode airs for the public. That was our appearance on the Dairyland Frights podcast, Woo! which was a great time. And the other is our appearance on the TV Trivia Podcast with Brian Sheehan, where Paul and I answer questions about Ghostbusters. So both were great fun. And again, we'll link those on our social media and at ghoststoryguys.com. If you want to pick up any Ghost Story Guys merch, we'd love to see you in it. Find it at ghoststoryguys.com. We have t-shirts, mugs, all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, yeah, if you, do, if you do buy some stuff, you get a personalized thank you video from me, probably very late because I keep forgetting, uh, but you will get it. And again, we deeply, deeply appreciate it. We'd also appreciate a rate and review on Spotify or CastBox or Apple Podcasts, anywhere you can review the show. Helps bump the numbers, just uh, brings a few more people to our little corner of the internet. One last shout out to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and musician Jerry Smith. Find more from him by searching for Rainy Days for Ghosts wherever you get your tunes. Again, that's Rainy Days for Ghosts or Street Witch is Jerry's other project. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, was composed and performed by Peter Kursov of Pizzanta Music. Find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Both him, Rainy Days for Ghosts, and Street Witch are streaming courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings, the Ghost Story Guys house label. And I guess that's going to do it, Paul. Well, we'll be back in a week, but until then... Into the darkness we go.
God, I have so much more English minutia to learn to be able to keep up with this conversation. <laughs> and that's before you even start about Middlesbrough. Yes, he said, as though he knew what this entailed. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> or Wet Wang, one of our comedy comedy town, uh, comedy is it town, village, Wet Wang. Why, why the fuck would they call it? Like, they must have known. They must have, <laughs> we're going to call this one Wet Wang. You are on mute. Oh, that's actually weird. No, you're, you're not on mute. What the fuck is going on? I can't hear you. 